Carla Amolka. She loved Disney characters and she was waiting for her knight in shining armor to arrive. The moment she saw Paul Bernardo, she thought she had finally met her knight in shining armor. He also picked up a hobby of videotaping almost everything. Amolka told the court that Bernardo said it was time to bring home another young girl to be kept as a slave. No one had any idea that this Ken and Barbie couple were committing some of the most horrific crimes this region would ever experience. Sometimes he would break into victims' houses and threaten them with knives. The sentence for first-degree murder is automatic, life with no chance of parole for 25 years. He kept on pushing and pushing and pushing and... She murdered her sister and even bragged that he would never get caught because he was too good-looking. Did you ever get caught? No, never. Why, they say. I'm a deadly innocent guy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Joining in the studio is my co-host, Austin. What's hey, up, man? what up? How's it going? Good, good. We got Daniel behind the screens over there. What's up, man? Hey, everybody. Boy, do we have a disturbing and downright disgusting episode for you today. We're covering yet another very, very evil couple. In the media, they were known as the Ken and Barbie killers, but they are, that, that just, that title to me does not do, I don't know, justice to who these depraved individuals really were. They are some of the most disturbed, downright evil people I've ever heard of. But before we get into that, I wanted to remind everybody that the Cryptid Collection is out now, if, in case you missed our episode last week. It is available at mileharmers.com. We've got four different designs, two t-shirts, two long sleeves. Austin is repping the Wendigo long sleeve today in kind of a forest green. I've got the Mothman tee on, which the Mothman's on my back. And Daniel's repping the Jersey Devil today. What's cool is that if you get one of each, you can get 10% off. And that is applied at checkout. And again, we ship worldwide. And there is very limited quantity, so if you want something, get it while you can, because once we're out, that's it until the next drop. So yeah, support the show at milehirmerch.com. But if you don't want to buy merch, you can also support the show absolutely for free by just making sure you're subscribed to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and following us on Spotify. And you know, if you're somebody who likes to scroll TikTok, check us out at Lights Out Cast over there. But I'm not going to waste any more time on the intro today because we've got a lot of ground to cover when it comes to these two. What's crazy is that one of these individuals is actually out walking the streets free as a bird, which I find quite disturbing, but we'll get into that later. So to begin this episode, we have to dive into, I guess, the main culprit in this couple, and that is Paul Kenneth Bernardo. So Paul Kenneth Bernardo was born on August 27, 1964 in Scarborough, Ontario. He was the third and youngest child of Kenneth and Marilyn Bernardo. And Paul's problems in life really started the moment he was born. When he came out of the womb, he had a large black mark on the left side of his face. And the first time his mother saw him, she actually screamed in shock. The mark was actually from a blood clot. 
and it did end up fully healing six weeks later. But this wasn't the only medical problem he had at birth. His tongue attached to the roof of his mouth, which had to be surgically detached, and he was also born with aphasia, which affects the language portion of the brain, making it difficult to understand written or spoken words. For much of his early childhood, he could only communicate by pointing and grunting. On top of all of this, Paul grew up in a dysfunctional and abusive home. His father, Kenneth, was known as a peeping Tom, an alcoholic and a pedophile. Because of this, Paul's mother, Marilyn, suffered from deep depression and agoraphobia. She often isolated herself from the family and eventually moved into the basement to be away from her husband. She'd only married Kenneth because her father urged her to marry for money and stability rather than marry her high school sweetheart, Bill, who she actually loved. But during her awful marriage, she began having an affair with her old boyfriend, Bill. Kenneth eventually became aware of what was going on, but didn't divorce her. And so their toxic marriage continued. Sometimes Marilyn would leave for weeks at a time, and Paul, Deborah, and the oldest brother, Dave, would be left alone with Kenneth. And even when Marilyn was home, she would lock herself away in the basement. Her children would sometimes go without food and clean clothes. Meanwhile, Kenneth often came home drunk and sexually abused Paul's older sister, Deborah. He had such domination over the household, he would even assault her in front of the entire family during movie night. Other times, he would stare into her bedroom window while masturbating. Then he would prowl through town looking through other girls' windows. Kenneth would eventually be arrested and charged with fondling a minor under the age of 14 in 1975, and much later he would be convicted of sexually assaulting his daughter more than 15 years after that. But in the meantime, they all had to endure his violence and abuse. Despite the horrors at home, Paul always presented himself as a well-adjusted kid at school, especially in his Boy Scout meetings. He was charming and friendly. He smiled a lot, which showed off his dimples. He was quite popular at school, and he also excelled academically. In his teen years, he became a summer camp counselor to get away from home during summer vacation, and when he was home, he kept as active as he could to stay out of the house. As he grew a little older, he developed an interest in pyromania with his friends, and just like Kenneth, he also became a peeping Tom and spied in his neighbor's windows. One time he was caught, but police only gave him a warning. His friends Van, Alex, and Steve Smyrnas often called him a silver-tongued devil when he was around girls. He also picked up a hobby of videotaping almost everything. He loved being on camera and videotaping everyday things like hanging out with his friends. At the age of 10, he started his large collection of pornography. He began collecting BDSM pornography and later urine and defecation pornography. And during puberty, he also developed dark fantasies. One of his life goals was to create a virgin farm where he would impregnate women to breed virgin girls and then rape them. When Paul was 16, his mother broke the news that she had been having an affair with her old boyfriend Bill for years and that Kenneth wasn't actually his biological father. In anger, Paul often called his mother a whore and a slob and in return, she called him a bastard from hell and that he better get used to it. It got to the point where Marilyn would ask him to do something around the house and Paul would just tell her to fuck off. And for his entire life, his parents' marriage and his relationship with them were in turmoil. Meanwhile, Paul's relationship with his first girlfriend was also falling apart. He had a high school girlfriend named Nadine Brammer, and they would often go on dates to the local McDonald's together. 
He didn't realize that his biological father, Bill, would often sit in the corner of the McDonald's and watch his son. He was curious about Paul, but never intervened in his life. And during these dates to McDonald's, Bill watched as his son's first relationship fell apart. Nadine noticed Paul would become violent, angry, and controlling. So she quickly backed out of the relationship and began dating one of Paul's friends named Steve. Paul was so enraged that he set fire to all of the belongings she had at his house. Instead of focusing on relationships, Paul's main goal became making as much money as possible. As a young teenager, he often smuggled stolen cigarettes from the U.S. into Canada. He also traded stolen gas for food at the Smyrnus' father's Greek restaurant, and in return he would let him illegally fish on his private property. After he moved out of his parents' place, he worked various jobs at local restaurants. He eventually developed dreams of becoming a rich finance guy. After high school, he attended Sir Wilfrid Collegiate Institute, and he ended up transferring to the University of Toronto, Scarborough in 1982. When he wasn't in class, he worked for the famous MLM, Amway. The sales culture there deeply affected him. He constantly bought books and audio tapes on how to get rich quick. His dreams were becoming an accountant and making a six-figure salary. And while at work, he dove into the obsession with money and sales. With his experience in sales, he learned how to become a great public speaker. When he spoke, he spoke with meaning and charisma. He rarely ever used filler words and he was deliberate with every word he did use. He quickly learned how to captivate whoever he was speaking with. He ended up using his charisma and sales knowledge towards his pickup game. At night, he would go out to bars and try different pickup techniques on young women there. Surprisingly, he had decent success, but none of his relationships lasted very long. In 1986, he briefly dated a high schooler named Jennifer. Paul would get drunk and sexually violent with her often, and he would demand that they have anal sex. Paul once told his friends that anal sex is the ultimate way to show domination over a woman and the only way to make a woman love you. He also began shoving wine bottles into Jennifer's vagina and seeing how far they could go. He enjoyed humiliating the women he picked up and his relationships got more violent as time went on. After each night spent with a woman, he would tell them that if they told anyone about the abuse, he would kill them. Sometimes he would even photograph them nude and then threaten to post the pictures to their church's bulletin board if they spoke about him to anyone. One time he even made one of his girlfriends wear a shirt that said, hands off on the front and Paul's property on the back. By 1986, Paul had multiple girlfriends, but he kept bothering some of them with obscene phone calls to the point that two women served him restraining orders. At only 22 years old, his sexual violence was already causing serious problems, and it was about to get so much worse once he met his future wife, Carla Homolka. So Carla Leanne Homolka was born May 4, 1970 in Mississauga, Ontario. She grew up in a small town with two younger sisters, Tammy and Lori. Her father, Carell, was a lamp salesman and her mother, Dorothy, worked as an administrative assistant at a hospital in St. Catharines. Some nights, Carell would get drunk and abuse Dorothy, and Carla would have to hold her sisters in safety until it was over. Carla was very social and smart, with a measured IQ of 132, but she didn't care very much about school. As a young child, she had friends, but they noticed she was controlling. And if they ever wanted to play with dolls, Carla would always be in control of everything that happened, including what clothes the dolls wore and what they did. In her teens, she found a part-time job at a number one pet center in St. Catharines. Her work friend Jennifer Black saw her as fun, pretty, and a bubbly girl. 
And this job was where Carla developed dreams of becoming a veterinarian. And she also had dreams of finding the love of her life. At the time, Carla was young and impressionable. And she always talked to Jennifer about how she thought she was like a princess. She loved Disney characters and she was waiting for her knight in shining armor to arrive. In one of her high school clubs, the exclusive Diamond Club, they constantly talked about marrying someone a little bit older with a lot of money so they could buy them a massive diamond engagement ring. They were the typical mean girls in school and Carla was at the top of the school's social hierarchy. When she got a little older, she started experimenting with drugs and sex and her friends started noticing a change in Carla. Especially after Carla publicly made fun of a disabled girl one day. She and her friends were at a local baseball game and Carla spotted another girl who had short arms. She called her a seal girl. The girl began to cry and she got other people to start making fun of her. She even got the other kids to clap their hands like seals as the girl cried. Her good friend Renya could see how proud Carla thought of herself. She also became abusive to her boyfriend. If she didn't get her way, she would threaten to kill herself. And what's interesting is that she also began diving into occult rituals and had Ouija board sessions very often. Maybe just to shock people. She would also verbally attack her classmates. One time she told a classmate she wanted to play connect the dots on his skin with a knife and pour vinegar on his wounds. She also started dressing in all black, wearing heavy black makeup and dyeing her hair in different colors every other week. She would also carve small circles into her skin and fill them with black nail polish. And she quickly became fascinated with death and the spirit realm. One day in high school, she wanted to get her friend Renya's hamster George to fly. So she constructed a pillowcase parachute. She then threw the hamster out of a second story window. The parachute collapsed in on itself and the hamster plunged to the ground. It survived the initial fall but died two weeks later from its injuries. Renya buried him in her backyard but Carla became obsessed with digging up the carcass and seeing how much it had decomposed. It wasn't clear what she wanted to do with it but some thought she wanted it for a seance or wanted to try and resurrect it. Later she wrote in a classmate's yearbook, Death Rules. Death kicks. I love death. Kill the fucking world. It was stuff like this that made her friends distance themselves from Carla. Despite the animal abuse, she still had dreams of becoming a vet. And her work often got her the opportunity to go to the pet conferences. When she was 17, she stayed with a co-worker at a hotel in Scarborough while attending a conference. And out of the blue, a handsome man approached her. The moment she saw Paul Bernardo, she thought, she had finally met her knight in shining armor. He approached her in the hotel lobby while she was getting food, and she was immediately attracted to his charm and motivation. When she discovered he was an accountant in training and had goals of making six figures, she was obsessed. Paul would later get a job at an accounting firm, Price Waterhouse, in 1987. But after their first meeting, they supposedly went up to the hotel room and had sex for four hours. Carla immediately fell in love and wanted Paul to meet her family. Soon enough, they ended up loving him too. Her parents eventually called him their weekend son. And Paul seemed like the real deal. A nice, handsome man with a good paying job. At the time, he was nice to Carla in front of other people, but soon became controlling. He demanded that she keep her hair blonde and she was only allowed to eat when he allowed her to. And since he was obsessed with humiliating women, he'd often call her stupid, ugly, and fat especially when they slept together. Carla quickly realized that he was obsessed with sexual violence and perversion, and she eventually played along. He would sneak into Carla's bedroom at night and they would have sex. 
but soon the vanilla sex wasn't enough. He would then sneak outside and look through Carla's little sister Tammy's window while she changed. She was only 12 years old at the time, and Carla was okay with it. During their first Christmas together, Paul gave Carla a teddy bear, a gold necklace, and a $300 dress. They'd only been dating for a few months, but Paul wanted to show her how much money he had. In return, Carla gave him a coupon that said, Upon presentation of this coupon, Carla Lien Homolka will perform sick, perverted acts upon Paul Kenneth Bernardo. These acts may be chosen by the recipient of the coupon. Paul tried to take her up on the deal, demanding that they have anal sex. Carla ended up refusing at first, but over the months, he eventually wore her down. He often threatened to end the relationship when he didn't get his way. So, she ended up writing him a long letter about how much she loved him, including paragraphs of sexually explicit fantasies. In the end, she would do almost anything to preserve their relationship, so she agreed to let him do what he wanted. One of the lines in the letter read, With you by my side, nothing can go wrong. This was one of the biggest lies she told herself. Because during their relationship, many, many things would go very, very wrong. And one of the first problems was Paul's secret that she would soon discover. He was the notorious Scarborough rapist. Because between 1987 and 1990, countless women were being attacked and raped in Scarborough. This area had never seen this many attacks, and it's believed that Paul was behind them all. His violence toward women escalated after he broke up with his college girlfriend, Jennifer, who he was still dating at the same time he began seeing Carla. One night, Paul and Jennifer were out for a drive. She had just given him a sweater as a graduation gift, but for whatever reason, he was enraged that night and he decided to break up with her. But he still offered to drive her home and they stopped at a red light. Paul grabbed her by the hair and hit her. Then he pulled out a knife and threatened her life. But he fumbled the knife and it dropped in between the car seats, which just gave Jennifer enough time to flee the car and run the rest of the way home, and luckily she never saw Paul again. After this, Paul began directing a sexual rage toward women around Scarborough. He would often stalk his victims as they got off the bus and walked home alone. His first attack might have been in May of 1987 when a 21-year-old girl was raped in front of her parents' house late at night after Paul followed her home. The next attack was only 10 days later when he raped a 19-year-old in her parents' backyard. Both victims were attacked while their family members were just inside the house sleeping, but the victims kept silent because he threatened to kill them if they made any noise. Paul's attacks continued for the next three years, and it paralyzed the community. Meanwhile, his relationship with Carla escalated to BDSM. Paul often threatened to break up with her if she wouldn't let him do what he wanted. So Carla kept agreeing to more sexual violence. She began wearing handcuffs in the bedroom while Paul's sexual violence escalated. He even began wrapping cords around her neck and threatening her with knives. He promised that they were just props that excited him. But on other occasions, Paul wasn't as violent. For a week, they once took a trip out to Disney World and Paul videotaped most of the trip like he always did. He would also videotape them having sex, but the only strange thing they did in the bedroom was wear mouse ears. For Carla, sex with Paul seemed like a gamble. Late one night, he asked her how she would feel if he was a rapist. And after thinking for a bit, she said she would be okay with it. It's not exactly clear when Carla first found out, but this made their bond even stronger and his attacks continued. Sometimes he would break into victims' houses and threaten them with knives. Most of the time, his knife was only used for intimidation. But one time, he ended up stabbing a victim as they fled, 
striking the girl once in the thigh and once in the butt that resulted in 12 stitches. Other times the women were able to defend themselves and he backed off. But throughout his spree, Paul raped at least 10 girls and women between the ages of 15 and 21. To put this into perspective of how many more women Paul might have been attacking at the time, these are more recent stats. We don't really have stats from this long ago, but it's estimated that only 40% of rapes and sexual assaults were reported in 2017, according to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Only about 25% were reported in 2018. For most women, their attacker is usually an intimate partner or an acquaintance, but in this case, Paul was most likely a stranger to his victims. So keep in mind that Paul might have been attacking dozens of more women during these three years. If it's only 25 to 40% of these cases being reported, we can kind of assume that Paul was probably just constantly, constantly sexually assaulting people. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was doing it as young as like 12 13 years old i mean as soon as he went through puberty it seemed like he just turned into an absolute predator yeah and took advantage of every opportunity that he could get but during paul's attacks he would shove stones and sticks into the victim's private areas after he had raped them sometimes he would attack them and then hide somewhere nearby when the victim would collect themselves and try to run he would emerge and attack them again after years went by police failed to catch him even when they staked out local bus stations and chased him on foot. All the while, Paul kept charming Carla. Carla still saw him as a handsome, successful man that she'd always dreamed of, and she called him her prince. She was aware he was sadistic during sex, but she played along. But he kept his most violent acts for his victims in Scarborough. On November 17, 1988, police finally formed a task force to catch the Scarborough rapist. Paul had continued to evade police he made sure his victims never saw his face. But finally, after three years, he slipped up. For the first time, Paul was overconfident, and he attacked one of his victims from the front in May 1990. This was the first time a victim got a clear view of his face, and police put together a composite picture of the serial rapist. The task force later put out a $150,000 reward for any information that would lead to the rapist's arrest. Ex-girlfriends and old co-workers identified Paul as a person in the sketch, a call came in from Alex Smyrnas, one of Paul's old friends. And his wife Tina said she also identified the man in the sketch as Paul. So Detective John Monroe eventually called Paul into the local police station for questioning in September 1990, and Paul arrived on his own free will. He was neat, clean, and well-dressed. For the entire interview, Paul was calm and collected. And as the officers questioned him about his relationship with women, he said he never had any problems in his dating past he was now in a long-term relationship. They asked if he would provide samples of his blood, hair, and saliva, and he agreed. He was cooperative, and he was able to charm his way out of the questioning. Basically, he told them that he had a beautiful girlfriend and plenty of ex-girlfriends, so he never had any reason to rape random women on the street. Paul was one of 700 persons of interest in the case. For crime investigations, DNA being used as evidence was still in its early stages. Plus, DNA from murder cases was a higher priority than sexual assault cases. And since Paul had charmed the investigators, his DNA samples were low priority. And they sat on a shelf for two years, untested. Meanwhile, Paul and Carla's relationship went on as usual. Two days after Paul committed another rape in 1989, Paul and Carla went on a romantic trip to Niagara Falls where he asked Carla to marry him. 
and they planned their wedding for June 1991. But their relationship had a lot of time to change and take shape until then. Over time, Paul made it very clear that he was obsessed with virgins. He knew Carla wasn't a virgin when they had met, and this always made her feel inferior to younger girls. He once admitted to whipping an ex-girlfriend with a belt when he discovered she wasn't a virgin, and Carla learned to fear his wrath. Carla knew that personally she could never fulfill his ultimate fantasy, but she figured she could try and help. Paul soon turned his gaze towards Carla's little sister, Tammy. Tammy looked a lot like Carla. Since she was a young virgin, this made her Paul's perfect fantasy. So Tammy was 15 years old in 10th grade at Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School. She joined track and field, ran cross country, and played soccer, which was her favorite sport. Tammy also liked Paul. She thought he was nice. She was also impressed with Paul's amateur rapping career, which is, you can go check out these videos of him rapping. It's the, oh, it's the dumbest shit I've ever seen. Did you ever get caught? No, never. Why, they say. I'm a deadly innocent guy. You ever get caught? Did you ever get caught? Did you ever get caught? No, never, never. Why? I'm a deadly innocent guy. So keep on fronting, man. You fronting and you're right like you tough, man. You ain't been where I've been, man. You ain't seen what I've seen. You ain't at where I'm at, man. So this is not replacing Stick Up Kid, okay? Deadly Innocence is a theme song, the title track to the album, and it's basically establishing my street credibility. This is a more of a, you know, you're hardcore battling um, the world through your ways of getting your illegal money or whatever you're doing. He's terrible. Uh, he had told the family he was an up-and-coming rap star with the name Young Hype. He had convinced Tammy that several record labels were trying to sign him and he later released his debut album titled Deadly Innocence. Unsurprising to no one, in his songs, he would talk about murder and sex, things like I'll kill you and I'll have sex with your wife, and he even bragged that he would never get caught because he was too good looking. Some of his lyrics were later used against him in court. But at the time, you know, Tammy's 15 years old, she thought Paul was cool. She had a, a young crush on him. And he had enough influence over her that even at one point, he demanded that she never have sex with anyone to wow. keep her virginity. So in, maybe in our eyes, we see Paul as this, you know, he's just this scummy wannabe. But yeah, in the eyes of a 15-year-old girl, he just presented himself as this cool dude. He definitely uses looks to his advantage, for sure. Yeah. He knew that... He, I mean, he used it as a way to gain power over them and probably all of his victims, you know, like it's kind of that hiding in plain sight, so to speak. You know, you don't look, you know, you would think, I guess in your mind, you might picture some, you know, somebody that's a rapist to be this ugly, creepy looking individual. Right. And in reality, you know, that literally has nothing to do with someone being a rapist, but, you know, just at the time too, I'm thinking... It's just, you know, there's not as much knowledge around, you know, they don't even know how to catch a serial rapist at this point. They're, you know, they're, his DNA sitting on a shelf for two years. And so he's really, you know, the fact that he's continuing to get away with these crimes, just it's all going to his head. Yeah. And it's just making him more and more confident that, you know, nobody will ever suspect me because of what I look like. And plus, I'm so charming and smart that I can just, you know, outsmart everybody. I mean, it's a classic 
psychopath serial killer behavior right yep. it's just he's starting to exhibit all of the the signs of what makes somebody a serial predator or killer yeah and i know charisma is a big part of a lot of serial killers too it's like oh i would have never imagined that he was this sick person because he was so charming and and seemingly like on the outside normal you know what I mean? right, he's got yeah. a normal job and and all of that but behind closed doors he's an absolute monster yep and he's done a fairly good job at at hiding that and obviously he's got a complete hold over carla because carla's just continuing to be you know basically a servant for him yeah and continuing to support him because she's now afraid of losing him right like so she's kind of just like giving herself to him and is willing to cover for all of his heinous crimes yeah which we'll we'll kind of unpack later but it's just absolutely crazy Paul was absolutely obsessed with taking Tammy's virginity, and he worked very hard and pressured Carla to allow him to do it. At first, Carla didn't agree, but like always, Paul wore her down. One day in June 1990, Carla stole Valium from the vet clinic she worked at. Then she put that Valium into some spaghetti before serving it to Tammy. After dinner, Tammy passed out and the couple moved her body into the bedroom. Paul began videotaping Tammy's unconscious body, but within a few minutes, Tammy began to stir and wake up. Supposedly, Carla didn't dose her enough, so Paul didn't have time to assault her and the video ended, and nothing else happened that day. But over the next few months, Paul was persistent. On Christmas Eve 1990, only a few days before Tammy's 16th birthday, Carla quote-unquote gifted her youngest sister's virginity to Paul. Tammy was allowed a few eggnog and rum drinks with her family because it was the holiday. We actually have a little bit of that family celebration footage. Uh, <laughs> all right. Wait, what are you drinking there? Uh, ice. Ice? Ice, baby, to go? No. Okay, let's see what's up. We have the television and we have the Carla drinking and Lori, which is absolutely not drinking. Yeah, you look at them. <laughs> yeah, they're the best ones. Do right. you like those? They're good. Don't eat the paper, but it's the bones for you. It's <laughs> like a kit, a bait. <laughs> they open the front of the door. Buddy, sit. Based on that footage, I mean, it, it kind of just shows you again from the outside it just looks like a typical family i mean there's nothing there's nothing really there that would raise red flags that there's two monsters in that room right it's it's like they're opening their gifts they're in a very like plain suburban home yeah she's even trying on her wedding dress you know things that you'd you know just do at a normal family gathering um i do that very beginning though i noticed only on the rewatch that you know, he's it's Tammy in the beginning drinking her drink, and then it's to Carla, and then it's to Lori, and you can kind of see in Lori's eyes a little uneasiness. Paul's like kind of pressuring her, like, yeah. "Oh, Lori's not drinking because she's the whatever," and you can kind of see her. She's maybe a little nervous about either Tammy drinking, yeah. maybe that was her several drink or something that they were pushing on her or something. I don't know. There's some subtext to read in that look. I think. Yeah, that's a good observation. It it does seem like. Paul's kind of, you know, subtly pressuring the girls to drink. Yeah. Um, especially Tammy, which you'll see why in a minute. 
So like before, Carla had stolen an anesthetic from the vet clinic, halothane and halcyon. Halothane is normally administered through a gas mask in very small doses. Usually it's a ratio of around one part halothane to 100 parts oxygen. Halcyon is a benzo used to treat insomnia. Carla was smart enough not to just take the drugs from the clinic because I believe she had been caught or at least accused of stealing ketamine from another clinic. Um, so this time she was really smart about it and instead she called in the orders pretending to be clients or um, pretending to use it for a vet operation for one of the veterinarians. So she could just pick it up from the clinic and they didn't really ask questions. As long as it was paid for, nothing was being stolen, it was going towards an operation. There's really no As far trace. as I know, right. As far as they knew, exactly. Later that Christmas Eve, Paul gave Tammy an alcoholic drink laced with halcyon. Tammy could tell that something was wrong with the drink and it reminded her of the spaghetti. So she yelled, these guys are trying to poison me and ran off. At first, Paul and Carla thought they were caught, but her parents had already gone to bed upstairs and their other sister Lori didn't take her seriously. Tammy later returned to hang out with Carla, Paul, and Lori, and they started watching a movie together. Lori told Paul to stop making drinks and then she went upstairs to bed. Late at night, Tammy was left alone with Paul and Carla as Tammy took a few more sips of her drink, she soon passed out in the family's rec room. Then Carla and Paul moved her to her bedroom, pulled out the video camera, and began raping her. They would take turns holding the camera. Meanwhile, Carla kept placing a rag soaked in halothane over Tammy's mouth to keep her unconscious while she was also checking her pulse. She needed to keep her under until Paul could finish. But as the minutes passed, she didn't realize that Tammy was turning blue. She had left the rag covering her face so she couldn't tell something was wrong. During the assault, she vomited in her mouth and began suffocating. Carla tried turning her over on her side to clear her airways, but it was too late. Tammy had sadly choked to death on her own vomit. They then quickly put her clothes back on and thought of a cover story before calling emergency services. When paramedics and police arrived, they told them Tammy had drunk too much alcohol in the basement, alone, before getting into bed and choking on her own vomit. As they hauled Tammy's body into the ambulance, police pointed out a burn mark on the side of Tammy's face. But Paul and Carla claimed it was only a rug burn when they dragged her into bed. The truth was, the burn mark was most likely a chemical burn from the rag soaked in halothane. A call soon came in from the hospital declaring Tammy dead on arrival. Lori ran upstairs crying while an officer tried to console her. Meanwhile, Carla was throwing the halothane rag and the vomit-covered blankets into the washing machine. When an officer found out what she was doing, he tried to stop her, but it was already too late. The evidence was destroyed, and Carla played dumb, pretending like she didn't know what she was doing. Supposedly, Paul was seen rocking back and forth on the family sofa, slapping his face and screaming. Tammy's death was later officially ruled an accident, and police never discovered the vet clinic drugs in the house because Carla had poured the halothane down the drain and discarded the bottle. For now, Carla and Paul got away with rape, and now murder and Tammy's death was just the beginning of a new chapter in their sick relationship. While the rest of the family mourned Tammy's death, Carla and Paul faked their grieving. Within three weeks of Tammy's death, Paul and Carla supposedly made another video titled The Fireside Chat, and these videos will come more into play as this story goes on. And besides the videotape showing the rapes, this one might be the most terrifying. Only a handful of people have actually seen this footage and the tapes would later be destroyed. 
only the transcript still exists, which we'll get into a little bit later. But supposedly, Paul began videotaping Carla in her parents' house where Tammy had lived. Carla was dressed in her dead sister's clothing while seducing Paul. She even did her hair up like Tammy and mimicked her voice, which is just disgusting. The filming began in the basement rec room, but then they moved into Tammy's bedroom. And in another shot, Carla can be seen naked on Tammy's bed. She tells Paul while looking at his penis, I love you, Snuffles. I loved when you fucked my little sister. She also said she would leave a rose on Tammy's grave. She can also be heard saying things like, 13 is the best age, and she wanted to have four children with Paul so he could have sex with them. The end of the video then shows the couple having sex together on Tammy's bed. From videos like this, some later theorized that Carla probably had zero remorse about what had happened, and others think that she was fully aware that leaving this rag soaked in halothane over Tammy's face, directly over Tammy's face, would definitely kill her. There's no way she was a vet clinic technician. And yeah, it wasn't like know. just she just picked up some random drug and right, and somebody told her like, oh yeah, put this over. No, she knew she one hundred percent like yeah. what this drug did. And as far as motive goes, many believe that Carla had a motive because she was possibly jealous that Paul was attracted to her little sister. You know, virgins, and and yeah. this was definitely a motivation. So, just a a absolutely disgusting videotape and i'm glad they're destroyed now but um this will come into play later we'll see much later um around the time of the convictions and stuff we'll see i just can't believe they're doing all this in her parents house like while they're sleeping they're literally raping her little sister and i just am like it's cr- I guess she was unconscious, so they were able to stay quiet, I guess. And let's just, I mean, there's nothing colder and more evil in my eyes than literally offering up your own sibling to be taken advantage of in this way and then murdered. Like it just, it just shows how evil the two of them are. Like that later on, I mean, Carla tries to act all innocent and act like she was, you know, the victim here and stuff like that. But it's just so clear and obvious. And, you know, the videotapes don't lie that she was just as as into this as Paul was. Yeah. And and the fact that this was their first together, as far as we know, the first they just went straight for Tammy, Carla's little sister. It just shows like they were ready to do the most horrific things right out of the gate absolutely horrifying and when they weren't making their horrific videos they were also busy planning their perfect summer wedding carla soon became concerned because her parents had been grieving for months after tammy's death as they should she thought it might push back her wedding date where they would spend so much money on tammy's funeral that they wouldn't be able to afford a luxurious wedding for her again carla wanted all the attention on her only a few days after christmas they had tammy's funeral Paul was seen stroking Tammy's hair in the casket. That is a scary sight to think about. Carla was constantly fixing Tammy's hair and clothing, and she even placed a wedding invitation into Tammy's casket before burial. After it was over, the couple quickly returned their focus to the wedding. To help pay for the expensive wedding, Paul found another accounting job in Toronto, 
and also smuggled stolen cigarettes into Canada. But he eventually stopped showing up to his accounting job and tried to start a worm picking business. But he soon fell into $25,000 in debt. He later declared bankruptcy and lived on unemployment while still making money smuggling cigarettes. While broke, Paul had been crashing at Carla's parents' house, and Lori went to live with her grandparents for a while. Carla's parents needed to be out of the house while they grieved, so Paul and Carla had the whole place to themselves. Paul had even brought home a hitchhiker one night and had sex with her in the house. He filmed himself abusing her and later dropped her off on a deserted road. When Carla's parents eventually returned, they no longer wanted Paul in the house, as they needed space to properly grieve. So Paul and Carla moved in together at a rental home in St. Catharines. They found more freedom here in all the wrong ways. It was a place of their own that opened them up to endless possibilities of sexual violence. But their first act of violence in the home was unexpected. One day, Carla and Paul invited another couple Vance and Joanne over to hang out and give them a tour of their new home. Carla then introduced the couple to a three-foot iguana named Spike. Through her work at the vet clinic, she had rescued the iguana from an abusive home and made it her own pet. But when she introduced Spike to Joanne, he got scared and bit her on the finger. Paul thought that physical discipline was the only way to teach the iguana, so he took Spike into the bedroom, but he ended up biting Paul too. So he then took Spike into the kitchen, placed him on a cutting board, grabbed a knife and chopped off the iguana's head. He then yelled at Carla to clean up the mess. Paul later cooked Spike on the grill and tried to feed it to their guests. Supposedly, Joanne and Vance were disgusted and didn't eat, but Carla ate her entire serving. A few months later, their wedding went ahead as planned, and on June 29, 1991, Carla and Paul had their fairy tale wedding. They rented an old-fashioned horse-driven coach, and Carla wore a wedding dress with puffy prints of sleeves that looked like she was going to a fancy ball. To everyone who attended, this looked like the dream marriage, and the couple looked perfect. This perfection would later get them the nicknames Ken and Barbie. Everything about them seemed ideal, but there was something much darker going on beneath the surface. Not only had they raped and killed Carla's own sister, but they were the reason that 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey mysteriously disappeared right outside her home only two weeks before the wedding. Leslie Mahaffey was a typical teenage girl. She came from a small town and she was raised with good values. Her father was an oceanographer who spent time away from home often, and her mother was a school teacher. At the time of her disappearance, she was in ninth grade at M.M. Robinson High School in Burlington. When she turned 14, she began rebelling like most teenagers. She spent a lot of time out of the house, but she always stayed in touch with her family, especially her younger brother, Ryan. Eventually, her parents were tired of her staying out late, so they gave her a strict curfew. And if she ever got home after curfew, she'd have to explain where she was and what she was doing. Other times, they would just lock the door, so she would have to bang on the door to wake them up. On the night of June 14, 1991, Leslie and some friends went to a memorial for one of their friends, Chris Evans, who had died in a car accident with three other teens. Then they traveled deep into the woods to drink and console each other. And when the night was over, a few friends walked her home around 2 a.m., which was way past her curfew. So when she got back to the house, the side door was locked, and she told her friends they could go home because she thought the front door would be unlocked. But as it turned out, the front door was locked as well and now she was all alone. Normally, she would just knock on the door and explain, you know, why she was home late to her parents, but for whatever reason, she didn't want to that night. Instead, she walked down to a local convenience store and called her friend Amanda to see if she could sleep over. But Amanda said no. Her little sister was sick and her mom wouldn't let her. 
After a long conversation, Leslie eventually hung up on the payphone a little after 2.30 a.m. She ended the conversation by telling her friend that she would just go home and wake up her parents to let her inside. But Leslie never returned home that night. And when she didn't show up at Chris Evans' funeral the next day, her mother Debbie knew something was terribly wrong. So she contacted police. On June 18th, she filed an official paperwork to have her daughter searched for and arrested as a runaway. But Leslie hadn't run away from home. On the night she disappeared, Paul had just returned from a four-hour cigarette smuggling run and was driving through Leslie's neighborhood, apparently looking for license plates to steal. That's when he spotted Leslie alone, in front of her house, so he pulled over and approached her. He said he was planning on robbing the neighbors next door. Leslie might have had alcohol still in her system at this point, but then Paul offered Leslie a cigarette, so she got into the passenger seat of his car and he handed her one. Then he pulled out a knife and wrapped a turtleneck around her head. He threatened to kill her, so she stayed silent the whole ride back to Paul and Carla's house. And once they were inside, Paul woke Carla up to show her how he had kidnapped a new victim. He was so proud of what he had done. Paul then booted up his video camera and assaulted Leslie. The next day, Carla came downstairs to the kitchen and was so upset. Not because Paul had kidnapped and assaulted a girl, but because he had used their nice French champagne flutes to give Leslie a few drinks. She then took the dog for a walk while Paul continued raping Leslie. For 36 hours, Paul and Carla videotaped their rape and abuse. In the tapes, Leslie could be seen with a turtleneck wrapped around her head. The music of David Bowie and Bob Marley blared in the background. Carla would keep her drugged and give Leslie a teddy bear to hold in between their sessions of rape and torture. They'd keep the turtleneck wrapped around her head the entire time even when they forced her to shower. When they returned, Paul told her, You're doing a good job, Leslie. A damn good job. The next two hours are going to determine what I'm going to do to you. And right now, you're scoring perfect. Paul then began giving Leslie a script. He forced her to tell him how great he was and how he was the king. He wanted to degrade and humiliate her as much as he could. But eventually, the turtleneck began slipping off her head. Leslie was smart enough to know this was one of the reasons she might survive the ordeal. She thought as long as she couldn't identify them, they might not kill her. But it was no use. According to Carla, after he was finished, Paul ended up strangling Leslie with an electrical cord. But his first attempt didn't work. She was only unconscious for several minutes. So when he realized she was still alive, he had to strangle her again until she was finally dead. According to Paul, he had been out of the room getting the car ready to transport Leslie. He claimed he didn't even know she had died while filling the car up with gas and taking a shower. When he returned to the room, he found Leslie dead. Carla had killed her with the vet clinic drugs. Both of them panicked and tried to give her CPR, but it was no use. And no one knows what version of the story is actually true. But either way, Leslie was dead. By June 16th, they moved her body from the upstairs bedroom down into their basement. And while her body was hidden away, they thought it was safe enough to host dinner for Carla's family for a Father's Day celebration. Carla made sure no one went into the basement, especially her mother, who tried to go down and get some potatoes. When the family left later that evening, Paul and Carla headed to the basement, and he used his grandfather's circular saw to dismember the body. Paul then rinsed and bagged the body parts and then bought 12 bags of concrete before encasing her remains in separate blocks, and his receipts would later be used against him in court. On the day of Carla and Paul's wedding, her body parts were discovered 15 miles from the reception by two fishermen, a father and son at Lake Gibson. The lake was at its lowest during the summer season, so many of the cement blocks weren't even fully submerged. 
One was even left on the shore. This would later lead investigators to believe that the killers weren't from the area. Anyone who lived nearby would have known that just a few hundred feet away was a waterway that was deep enough to submerge the cement blocks, and since they were in shallow water, they were easy to spot. The fishermen had first thought they saw strange purple fish in the water, but later discovered they were human body parts trapped in cement. Once investigators arrived to the scene, they ordered the lake to be dredged, and they discovered Leslie's remains had been encased in eight separate concrete blocks. One contained her torso and weighed 200 pounds. They had to use her braces and dental records to identify her, and her remains were so damaged they couldn't determine her cause of death. Within 24 hours, her death reached front page news. The people of Ontario weren't used to this type of deranged behavior. The Scarborough rapist had been around for the last four years, and now dismembered body parts were showing up in a nearby lake. St. Catharines was known as a safe community at the time, but now two monsters in town were disguising themselves as the perfect couple. No one had any idea that this Ken and Barbie couple were committing some of the most horrific crimes this region would ever experience. And as the investigation into Leslie's death took off, Paul and Carla were off enjoying their honeymoon in Hawaii. When they later got home from Hawaii, Paul's urges kept escalating, and he dreamed of keeping someone at home permanently so he could have them whenever he wanted. They had kept Leslie alive in their home for 36 hours, but Paul wanted someone more permanent, so they went on the hunt together. They had tried grooming a 16-year-old Jane Doe that Carla met through the vet clinic. They took her to fancy restaurants and the movies, and Paul pressured her to lose her virginity to him, but she always declined. Later, Jane Doe later confessed to her horse riding instructor what was happening, and then he told Jane Doe's mother. But Jane claimed that Paul had only groped her breast. A few months later, she eventually cut things off with the couple completely. She could see Paul's anger growing each time she told him she wouldn't have sex with him. So one night, she called her mother to pick her up from Paul and Carla's house, and Jane Doe never went back again. The next time she interacted with Paul was when she later testified against him in court. Now that Paul had lost his potential victim, he quickly needed to find another. Meanwhile, Carla wanted a child with Paul. She had tried to do everything to make him happy, but Paul was still obsessed with virgins, and it seemed like there was no end in sight. He once told Carla that he wanted her to help him acquire 50 virgin sex slaves, and the more this dream slipped through his finger, the more he pulled away from Carla. So again, Carla promised that they would find someone by April 1992, they had found their next target, a 15-year-old girl named Kristen Dawn French. Kristen was a student at Holy Cross Catholic Secondary School in St. Catharines. She was a member of an ice skating team that won several medals and a member of the school's rowing team. Those who knew her said she came from a great family and had a good sense of humor. After the community had heard about what had happened to Leslie, Kristen always knew to be careful outside. She'd even tell her friends not to talk to strangers and be aware of their surroundings. She was always very careful, but on April 16, 1992, she was walking home from school when she was approached at the entrance of the Grace Lutheran Church parking lot. Paul and Carla had decided to look for young girls who went to Catholic school because he thought it was a great place to find a virgin. So in broad daylight, these two pulled up to her and said they needed help with directions. And Kristen was good-hearted and always wanted to help those in need, so she walked up to the car and saw Carla had her map pulled out, pretending she was lost. Kristen was disarmed because it was a couple, especially a woman who needed help. As she got closer, Paul got out of the car and blindsided Kristen. Then he threw her into the front seat of the car and took off. Carla held Kristen down by her hair to keep her quiet, but several eyewitnesses saw the abduction. 
Before the crime was even reported, Kristen's family knew something was wrong because it usually only took her 15 minutes to walk home from school and she was always on time because she had to feed and walk her dog. But that day she never made it home. Her mother immediately called the police and the Niagara Regional Police Service formed a search team and they interviewed the eyewitnesses who saw the abduction. But they identified the wrong car and the search led to a dead end. When Paul, Carla, and Kristen all got back to the house in St. Catharines, they imprisoned her there for the next three days. They never blindfolded her. And the couple videotaped the multiple sessions of rape and abuse. They also forced her to drink large amounts of alcohol in between sessions to keep her disoriented. After a day or two of repeated abuse, Kristen saw a small opportunity to escape. One day when Paul asked what kind of food Kristen wanted, she told him to go to the McDonald's, which would take him about a half an hour there and back. Meanwhile, Kristen was left in the house with Carla, and Kristen begged her to let her go. She thought that Paul was the main culprit behind the abuse, and maybe Carla could find a small bit of sympathy in her heart, but she wouldn't allow it. Instead, Carla turned on the local news where Kristen watched her father begging for her life. Kristen never left the house alive. The couple would continue assaulting her for as long as they wanted. Once Paul returned from the store, the degrading assaults continued but Kristen always tried to fight back. When they threatened her life, Kristen said, some things are worth dying for. And then she called Paul a bastard and said, I don't know how your wife can stand to be around you. And these were the last words Kristen spoke on camera. Many believe the couple had always planned on killing Kristen from the beginning because he never blindfolded her. And they planned on keeping her in prison as long as they could before eventually killing her. Supposedly, they killed her after only three days because they had to spend Easter with Carla's family. Dinner with the family would be a perfect alibi, but they didn't want Kristen possibly escaping while they were gone. They knew she was smart and resourceful, so they figured the only option was to end her life. According to Carla, Paul strangled Kristen to death. But according to Paul, Carla had beaten Kristen to death with a rubber mallet when she tried to escape. Together, they bathed and scrubbed her dead body. Then they shaved off all of her hair to try to slow down the identification process. And then they dumped the body in a ditch on the side of the country road number one which was a side road in Burlington. Her naked body was discovered a week and a half later on April 30th, 1992. The ditch where she was found was only a stone's throw away from Leslie's burial site. This got the police to connect Leslie and Kristen's murders, and they dubbed the killers the schoolgirl killer. After their third murder together, something changed in Paul. First, he and Carla changed their last name to Teal. He also changed his middle name to Jason after the Friday the 13th character. This was a way to hide their identity and distance his name from Kenneth Bernardo, which wasn't his real father. This was also around the same time Kenneth was going to trial for sexually assaulting his own daughter. The second thing that changed was his violent aggression toward Carla. Normally, he wouldn't direct all of his sadism and anger toward her, but he began blaming her for all of the failed attempts at keeping a virgin sex slave. On December 27, 1992, he severely beat Carla with a flashlight leaving her with multiple bruises across her body, including two black eyes. On January 4th, 1993, she returned to work, but told her co-workers that her wounds were from a car accident. Her co-workers at the vet suspected she was lying, so they anonymously contacted Carla's parents and they got Carla to leave her home in St. Catharines, but she returned to the house the next day and Paul kept beating her. It took days for Carla's parents and one of her friends to finally convince her to go to St. Catherine's General Hospital to be treated for her wounds. One of the doctors there said her wounds were probably one of the worst domestic abuse cases he had ever seen. After this, she was finally ready to tell the police what had happened. 
This trip to the hospital would mark the beginning of the end of Paul and Carla's awful marriage and their horrendous crimes. While in the hospital, she told the police that her husband had assaulted her, and this was when the case cracked wide open. Investigators noticed that Carla was wearing a Mickey Mouse watch that looked exactly like the one Leslie was wearing when she disappeared. Also, just before Carla pressed charges against Paul, the DNA results from the Scarborough Rape Task Force had finally processed in December 1992. And lo and behold, the samples matched Paul's DNA. Meanwhile, a friend of Paul's found a suicide note he had written and convinced him to reconsider. It seemed like Paul also had a feeling that the end was near. Police later placed 24-hour surveillance on him. On February 9, 1993, Carla had only told the Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad about the domestic abuse. Paul was soon arrested, but he was later released on recognizance. Later that same night, Carla confessed to her aunt and uncle that Paul was the Scarborough rapist. And she also admitted that they had both killed her little sister Tammy, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French. But in her defense, she claimed that she was also a victim herself. She told them everything had been recorded on videotape, and the tapes were hidden somewhere inside her house in St. Catharines. The police were contacted soon after, and Tammy Homolka's case was immediately reopened, and her body was exhumed. Carla quickly contacted a lawyer. She wanted immunity in exchange for a confession, but since she was part of the crimes, immunity was near impossible. Even when they considered a plea deal, the prosecution held off. They were hopeful they could build a case against both Paul and Carla without needing a deal. When police arrested Paul again, he didn't act like he had the first time. Two years earlier, he acted charming and helpful when they brought him in for questioning, but this time, he was pissed off and agitated. Why was that statement issue? Why didn't they come in and talk to me if they didn't have enough information? We were waiting on that tape. You can play that tape back. I, you know, I asked you guys, if you're reaching, we're going to come in. I sat there month after month after month. No one came. Turned on the TV in September. People, you know, declared that Paul Bernardo was, you know, this crazy liar to, to, to police. What, what, what's the fundamental problem here? Well, I, I, no, I mean, I just this the Canadian way and, uh, and, and, and no one comes in. And now you guys are saying that you didn't have enough information. That statement you're giving me is much different from the public statement they said, which said I was a liar. I don't, I don't, it was I night day and they didn't come in. If they didn't have enough information, why don't you come in and get the information? Absolutely. I mean, either I'm lying or I'm not lying. And, and this goes to the crux of this argument. Either I'm a liar to you, I'm a lie to you right now about everything, like I did to Peel Regional, according to their story, or I'm not. And, you know, I, I just, I just, I, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, come voluntarily and have people come. You guys ban me from the press, you, you roll your stories over and you constantly say that I'm a liar, I'm a liar. I made mistakes 17 years ago. Said, okay, fine, I did. But but now we're talking about today, and you're not going to roll forward that I'm some psychopathic liar sitting in jail, claiming other people's responsibilities for other crimes. This is a total cross-examination point. You want to start this thing? Lockyer is going to grab a hold of it and say, well, he lied about other crimes. You know, he's a, he's a crazy liar. Why didn't you guys resolve this? After arguing with police, they realized he wouldn't tell them anything. But as it turned out, they didn't need anything from Paul. Carla was ready to open up about all the killings, but she first wanted to make clear that she was a battered wife and an unwilling accomplice. She tried to make it seem like she had no choice because Paul was abusive. Mm-hmm. He wasn't loving. He acted like he didn't care that we got married. Um, he told me that he was a Carla rapist, and it just was not like the kind of wedding night that her dreams would happen. 
being physically and verbally abusive to me at that time, as you know. Um, he kept on pushing and pushing and pushing, and I said, finally I said, okay, and thinking that it, would, it wouldn't be, you know, it would just be one time, that's it, we would shut him up, and he would stop bothering me and stop hurting me. As investigators began collecting physical evidence, they realized there wasn't much. As for the case to get a conviction, prosecutors believed they needed at least one solid eyewitness to testify. They believed the only way they could imprison Paul was to piece together Carla's story. At this point in the investigation, there was no trace of the videotapes that Carla had mentioned. As police searched the couple's home, they weren't allowed to break down walls, and damage had to be kept to a minimum. And the search of the house lasted for 71 days. They ended up finding only one mini video cassette hidden in the bathroom ceiling. It only contained footage of Carla performing oral sex on an unknown woman, so they made Carla a deal. If she would testify, they would only give her 12 years in prison. Carla quickly agreed. As it turned out, there used to be more tapes hidden in the house, but they had been moved by Paul's defense attorney, Ken Murray. Ken had removed them and held onto them for 18 months before realizing he was in the middle of a serious ethical dilemma. Then he resigned as Paul's lawyer and turned the tapes over to Paul's new attorney, John Rosen. Supposedly, at one point, Paul told Ken to destroy the tapes. The new lawyer, John, held onto the tapes for two weeks before turning them over to police. While he had them in his possession, he watched them all. And John later said that as he watched them, all he wanted to do was cry. Ken Murray, the first lawyer, later claimed he only held onto the tapes so that they could impeach Carla when she testified against Paul. He was later tried and acquitted of obstruction of justice and faced a disciplinary hearing by the Law Society of Upper Canada. When the videotapes were finally turned over, investigators first noticed that the writing on the videotapes was in Carla's handwriting. She sometimes wrote the victims' names and put a heart and flower stickers next to them. And once the investigators watched the footage, they saw Carla ride alongside her husband, raping and torturing the victims. And it definitely looked like she enjoyed every bit of it. So it was now clear that Carla wasn't just this unwilling participant like she had tried to claim earlier. And when looking back at earlier police videos, it was clear she had blatantly lied about specific details. This new video footage clearly showed her placing the drug-soaked rag directly on her sister's face, which led to the chemical burns that they had seen. But if we go back and look, here's a clip of her just blatantly lying about it. Those burns are possibly chemical in nature and anti-mortem. The only chemical that was near her was the halothane. It was not placed on her face directly. It was held, as I said, like this, this far away. So yeah, basically, I mean, clearly lying. And uh, I think she did this more often than not, where she said, yes, I participated but here's to the extent that I participated in. And since they, at the time they didn't have all these videotapes showing her being a part of it before they gave her this plea deal, she could just say, oh no, you know, I was safely administering this anesthesia to her. Yes, I was there, but only in a certain capacity. I was a battered wife. Right. I didn't want to be there, but he forced me to be there and do right. things for him. But these tapes clearly showed that she was lying. Thank God these tapes got, a, you know, confiscated by police and they were able to watch it because without them, it's 
you know, they probably would have believed her story. And it just sucks that they, you know, made this deal with her before trying to get all the evidence because it's very clear from the tapes that she was a willing participant and was having just as much fun as Paul was oftentimes. And I don't understand. It still blows my mind that that lawyer who held on to the tapes for. Yeah. How the hell does he not get like disbarred for that? Like, right. He just had a disciplinary hearing and slap on the wrist and and back at it. It's crazy. Some also pointed out that there was no evidence to suggest that Paul had killed anyone before meeting Carla. Supposedly he didn't take a victim's life until Carla became his accomplice. This made many believe that Carla might have motivated the couple to commit murder. In the end, the blame was hard to place. But either way, when the couple was together, they were a deadly combo. Even though Carla now looked like a willing participant, the government had already offered her a plea bargain of 12 years imprisonment on May 5th, 1993. They had given her one week to accept the deal, and if she didn't, they would charge her with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and several other crimes. She agreed. And when she spoke with investigators, she told them Paul had raped as many as 30 women over the years, which was twice the amount police had suspected. They ended up divorcing in February 1994. In order for Paul to get a fair trial, a publication ban was placed on Carla's statements, and certain details couldn't be released to the press at the time. This worked in Carla's favor because the public still considered her a victim. Canadian media couldn't report anything about what was found on the videotapes. Some lawyers argued that rumors and speculation would hurt the trial even more than a publication ban, but it was still imposed on July 5th, 1993, since the ban couldn't be put on U.S. publications. The story still reached Buffalo, Detroit, D.C., New York City, as well as the U.K. Some Canadians even crossed the border to buy the Buffalo News, and they saw that Carla wasn't what she seemed. Canadian police were ordered to arrest anyone at the border with more than one copy. Other publications weren't allowed to cross the border at all. But since the internet was also booming around the same time, many Canadians just read about the case on their home computers. In the end, Paul was tried for the murders of Kristen French, and Leslie Mahaffey in 1995, and Carla testified against him. And many of the audio from the videotapes were also played in court. Only the prosecution, defense, and jury were allowed to review the tapes. Paul claimed that the deaths were accidental and Carla was a real killer. But on September 1st, 1995, Paul was convicted on a long list of offenses, which included two first-degree murders and two aggravated sexual assaults. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years. He was also designated as a dangerous offender, which would make it almost impossible for him to ever be released from prison. While in prison, Paul had to be placed in segregation away from other prisoners, but he was attacked once after returning from the showers. Another time, five other inmates tried to storm the segregation area, but the guards subdued them with tear gas. Paul later admitted in February 2006 that he had sexually assaulted at least 10 other women. Most were in 1986, a year before the Scarborough rapist spree had officially begun. He has also been accused of countless other crimes between 1986 and 1992, and this included a Jane Doe that Carla had drugged while Paul raped her, and during the abuse she stopped breathing. Carla called an ambulance but later called them back saying that her friend had started breathing again. Other potential crimes included the disappearance of Elizabeth Bain on June 19, 1990 in Colonel Danforth Park. Paul later confessed to at least eight attacks in that area. 
In summer of 1991, Paul and Carla might have kidnapped and raped a woman while on their honeymoon in Hawaii even. Some of the other victims even claimed there was a blonde woman present with a video camera, which might have been Carla. One of Paul's confessed attacks had been pinned on someone else, 19-year-old Anthony Hainmeyer, who had already served his two-year sentence for it. Paul confessed nearly 20 years after the crime, and Anthony had to carry the weight of that conviction for more than half of his life. It destroyed his marriage, but the conviction was later overturned and he was exonerated on June 25, 2008. After all of Paul's convictions and confessions, it's still a mystery as to how many rapes and murders he might have actually committed over the years. It could be at least 18 and anywhere up to 30 or 40 victims, but we will most likely never know the real number. Paul was eligible for parole in February 2018, but was denied in October of that year. He applied again in 2021, but he was denied again. As of 2022, he continues to serve a life sentence at a maximum security prison in Millhaven, Ontario. As for Carla, her plea bargain quickly became controversial because the videotapes had been hidden for months by Paul's ex-lawyer, but it was too late. I looked into why this deal still went through, even though it seems absolutely ridiculous. Um, and luckily, due to public outrage at the 12-year sentence, the Attorney General of Ontario opened up an inquiry into the deal. The biggest problem was that they didn't charge Carla with the murder after the discovery of the videotapes. The inquiry found that at the time, the prosecutors were, quote, professional and responsible. The inquiry statement made by Judge Patrick T. Galligan said, quote, It is my firm conclusion that, Distasteful as it always is to negotiate with an accomplice, the Crown has a positive obligation to prosecute murderers. It is often the lesser of two evils to deal with an accomplice rather than to be left in a situation where a violent and dangerous offender cannot be prosecuted. So in other words, we're not sure if we can really convict, so it's better to just get this plea deal and we can guarantee a conviction for both of these people. The inquiry also concluded that the appropriate criminal sanction for Homoko's involvement was in the range of 10 to 15 years imprisonment, so they argued that 12 years seemed to be adequate. Basically, since Carla had already given them so much information on the case against herself and Paul, the Crown found no grounds to break the agreement and reopen the case. Initially, she had promised to tell everything she knew and give her testimony in Paul's case, which we kind of know is a lie. She was lying through a lot of it. But today, this is still regarded as one of the worst plea deals in Canadian history, and prosecutors later even called it a deal with the devil. So what a mess that this deal was. It sounds like they just didn't want to backtrack. They didn't want to put more money into actually charging her with these murders they were scared that they weren't going to get a conviction if they didn't go through with a deal. Which I don't even understand. I mean, first of all, why was she never charged with lying to police? Like after they found out she was blatantly lying about stuff. Right. And they had like, what better evidence you need than video evidence of the individual with the victims performing heinous acts on them. Right. Torturing them. I, I just don't understand this. This seems like such a slam dunk case. Like, there is no, like, what other evidence would you even need? I mean, you have all the evidence you need in the videotapes. Like, it's yeah. right there. All you do is show the videotapes to the jury and let the jury make up their mind. I mean, I think any jury would have absolutely convicted her of, of murder. 
I mean, she murdered her sister. Right. Like she literally killed her own sister. It's it's absolutely insane that Paul wasn't even charged with the murder of right, Tammy right. Holka. So who's who's, so who's left responsible yeah. for that? Who's Crazy. who's on the hook for that? Nobody. Just so that the 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 legal system can just you know get their get their guaranteed conviction and not have to go back on what they already said. Like it makes no sense whatsoever. What about the victims? It just seems like the judge and everybody else involved in this case just weren't thinking about the victims' families and and how that would feel knowing that there's video footage showing Carla literally taking part in murdering, dismembering, and everything else that they did, and yet she's getting such a light sentence. Yeah. Like I guarantee you there's probably drug dealers in Canadian prison that have longer sentences than Carla got, Yeah, which is crazy. And I mean, even if you wanted to try and give her the benefit of the doubt about any of this, I think that fireside chat video shows how she is. She's just evil. She's just evil. She's talking. She's like dressed up like her little sister yeah. right after she had just died. Like the, there's no remorse. And I, I don't know where they got this number. They're like arguing that, oh, well, the range for her involvement, what they don't want to use the word murder or anything is between 10 and 15 years. I don't even understand what, well, tell me in words, what do you think her involvement was? Because yeah. then we could maybe argue a different number there. But sounds like they just didn't want to renegotiate anything. And they just wanted to keep going through with it. Yeah, unbelievable. But Carla ended up going on trial on June 28th, 1993. The public wasn't allowed in the courtroom because of the publication ban. So the rumors and speculation went wild. Print publications and websites began depicting a demonic couple, vampires or the Ken and Barbie murderers. When it was all over, Carla was sent to prison for 12 years as part of the plea deal. The videotapes were never released to the public because of the publication ban and they were later destroyed in December 2001. And Carla's commentary on the tapes while watching them with police has been sealed. In 1995, Carla was transported from prison to testify against Paul in his case. When she returned to Kingston's prison for women, her mother Dorothy began suffering from breakdowns every holiday season. Sometimes she was hospitalized for months at a time. Meanwhile, Carla began a sociology correspondence course at Queen's University, and she later graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology, which is fucking ironic if you ask me, right. of course. Later during her release hearing, release hearing, I can't go. believe I'm saying those words. Louis Morissette, a psychiatrist, said Carla did not represent a threat to society. Another forensic psychologist said that if she posed any kind of danger, it was only if she found another sexual sadist like Paul. Carla ended up not applying for parole because in the end, she was deemed a risk to reoffend. In 2004, the National Parole Board ruled that Carla had to stay in prison for her full sentence. They noticed she had made some progress toward rehabilitation, but they were concerned over her intimate sexual relationship with another inmate, convicted murderer Jean-Paul Gerbet who had been convicted of killing a 23-year-old woman in 1998. After serving 10 years in maximum security and two in medium security, Carla was quietly released in 2005. In 2008, she sent a letter of apology to her family. In it, she still blamed Paul for Tammy's death, saying, He wanted me to get sleeping pills from work, threatened me and physically and emotionally abused me when I refused. I tried so hard to save her. 
on her release, restrictions were lifted so she could live, work, and move around Canada without notifying authorities. They also allowed her to contact her ex-husband, the victim's families, and other criminals. Justice James Brunton believes she no longer posed a real and imminent danger. After her release, she did a brief radio interview with CBC saying she felt like she was Paul's victim. And then she tried to hide from the public, but news outlets followed her everywhere. She tried to seek protection from the media, but the only thing they weren't allowed to report was her home address. She even fled to the Caribbean for several years to hide. Later, she married her lawyer's brother in 2012 and gave birth to two boys and a girl. By 2017, she had unofficially changed her name and lived in Chateauguay, Quebec. Here, she worked as a volunteer at her children's school. And there are currently social media groups that track her every move. Despite her horrific crimes, she has never had to register as a sex offender. I just, there's just so many things wrong with this. Yeah. Just like, oh man. It's kind of mind blowing. It doesn't even seem real, honestly. There's just like so many things wrong with the Canadian justice system. Like the fact that they're letting people like this out after 12 years and not tracking them, not putting any restrictions on them. And she's not a sex offender. Like basically was like, okay, she's, she did her time. She's re she's good to go. Rehabilitated, you know, never have to worry about her being an issue again. We're that confident in our rehabilitation of her yeah. that she's just free to go on with her life. Yeah. They, they really Absurd. want to push the rehabilitation. Yeah. That's like, there. it's We've like a reoccurring theme with, yeah. with, the Canadian authorities is like, oh, they're rehabilitated. And th this is coming from someone I'm all down with rehabilitation, right. but these cases just blow but in my these mind. Cases where people are, are doing some of the most evil, horrific acts you can possibly do on another human being. There's like, there's no being rehabilitated from that. No, there's I, just not selling out your sister's virginity and killing her. I'd like, that's how that's crazy. I just can't believe she never got a murder charge ever. Right? Nobody. Just, just so the there was no justice for Tammy. Yep. I wonder what her parents think. They, they probably want nothing to do with her as my yeah, guess. They, they haven't been, as far as I could tell, they haven't really been vocal about it. And I to would totally understand why you just wouldn't even want the press involved in any of this. But I can't even imagine. I mean, that hopefully that, I don't know. I don't know how you come to terms with something like that. I swear, though, if they let Paul out, he keeps trying to apply for parole. I mean, he's like, he could get out. Yeah, which is terrifying. Which is unbelievable. Yeah. Because he, I mean, I think both of them, there is, you know, there's no, no way that they'd be able to go on and not have issues again, you know. Yeah. I can't Especially think, Paul. After 30, 40 potential victims, it's like, there's something clearly so wrong with this guy up to, I would, I would, you know, you could argue that he was a psychopath. We can get into the, the analysis of these two people, but I clearly anybody could look at Paul's case and be like, this man is not safe. This man should not be let free at any, at any point. And I hope, I hope that the Canadian government can see that. But a big question they ask is, you know, the old question of nature versus nurture in this case and it's also the other question which we can get into is would they have done these things if they didn't find each other? If Paul and Carla never crossed paths, would it have escalated to this? So 
supposedly there wasn't much in Carla's past that suggested she would turn it out like this. Um, as far as the nurturing aspect of it goes, she had a decent upbringing in a nice suburban home. Aside from she did have an alcoholic father who was abusive. We know that she had this rebellious phase in her teenage years. You know, she killed a hamster. Um, but it didn't really seem like rape and murder was, you would think that a progression, a violent progression wouldn't just all of a sudden you're raping and murdering your own sister, you know? So it's hard to see signs for that early on. As for Paul, though, the signs were pretty clear that Paul had issues early on, just looking back at his childhood. His father was sexually abusive to his sister, even in front of the family. His parents constantly fought. His mother often called him names, bastard from hell. So this troubled home life kind of plays into this sadistic sexual violence that he developed. Um, but yeah, a lot of people think it's just the, the stars aligned, and it was a crazy coincidence that Paul happened to come across Carla and vice versa. Professor Louis Schlesinger, a forensic psychologist, believes that Carla was a catalyst for Paul's dark fantasies. They believe Paul used Carla for his own needs, and Carla fed off of Paul to satisfy her own needs. Or in his words, it was a symbiotic relationship. And he believes their sexual violence was a result of internal and environmental factors. But he also believes that there's a significant neurobiological component to this case, which I can totally see in that it could be hormonal genetic electrical or chemical possibly made worse by a potential head injury and uh, psychosocial factors especially upbringing uh, one of the biggest questions is yeah would they both have become murderers if they never met each other as far as we know paul even though he was a deviant and violent um we there was no evidence that he was ready to kill someone and as far as we know, Carla, the, it was even more out of the blue because she had, as far as we know, nothing like this. What do you think? Like, what? Yeah, that's, what's your take on it? I think I kind of uh, agree with this next forensic psychologist. Her name is Catherine Ramsland. Uh, Carla might not have become a killer, but she still would have been a calculated, manipulative narcissist. And also I'd add on to that, you know, it was maybe just a matter of time that she would find someone else to indulge in that sick behavior. So I think for Carla, it wouldn't have been like if she was alone, it wouldn't have escalated to this. I think for Paul though, we had already seen the seeds planted and he probably would have escalated regardless. I think, um, plus, I mean, he, he, from an early age, she had the fantasies of keeping slaves just rank pornography, uh, pyromania, you know, which plays into, we talked about the dark yeah, triad. Like yeah. he has a lot of psychopath traits in him. Uh, as for Carla, it's a little bit harder to see. So I think her, her sick fantasies play out a little bit differently. And maybe, maybe she's just better at being manipulative and secretive about it compared to Paul. Cause it's like, you just go back and look at any aspect of Paul's life and be like, this guy's going to be problematic. But Carla, I think it's just, maybe it's harder to, to see it. What do you think? Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I think, I think both on their own, I think both on their own have the, have the capability inside of them to escalate this as far as they want to go. I think Paul's like, there's no question in my mind that regardless of meeting Carla, that, 
he was going to end up being a sadistic serial killer. I mean, he, like you mentioned, he had, he has all of the signs that point in that direction. I mean, the, the potential brain damage that he, he suffered, you know, at a young age could play into it. And I think there's just so many examples of, of how over the years and starting from a very young age that, you know, predatorial behavior is is just brewing and he's just he's kind of leaning into it as he as he grows older and older and i think it would have been only a matter of time on his own and for all we know i mean he could have on his own like killed people without carla's knowledge i mean there's a good chance that he i mean he was clearly clearly going out and raping women without carla at times it's very possible that he also killed them and and disposed of their bodies without carla ever knowing so i i think i think it's very clear that Paul was just destined to be a, a serial killer from the very beginning. And it was just a matter of time before he sort of, you know, got that taste and he just could never get enough of it. And so it just escalated and escalated and escalated. Carla, on the other hand, I think some, I think it's interesting that she has some of the signs, but again, I, I think the big question is, would it have escalated to killing on her own? And I don't necessarily think so because obviously if you just look at the statistics that you know serial killers and people who kill it's you know skewed heavily towards male versus female so it seems like in order for her to escalate to that next level of being a killer she would need some sort of push in that direction from from a partner and i think paul was that for her so i don't necessarily think that she would have become a killer but there's there's just something off about carla as well and it may just be that she she knows she's this you know pretty woman so to speak that can just kind of get her way and manipulate people and you know there's actually footage of her going back to their house with police and it's a great example of just how manipulative and calculated she is is that she she put on a schoolgirl outfit and she's talking in this like little girl voice almost to try and it's almost kind of seductive in the way that she's conducting herself and the way that she's moving through this house where all this horrible things happened and she's just there's no emotion too and and that's what's scary to me about her is that the never once does it seem like she regrets anything that she did even though she wrote you know i'm sorry blah 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 it just i don't think she really means it i don't think she I mean, she just seems heartless to me, cold on the inside. Even in those apologies, she's still redirecting blame. Yeah. Saying it was yeah. still Paul's right. fault. Right. Never takes full never responsibility yeah. or seems like regretful for what she did, especially with her freaking sister. It's like you literally led your sister to her horrible, horrible death. Yeah. And you could have stopped it. Like whether or not you you want to say that to police, she could have stopped all of this at any point in time and yet she didn't yeah and the fact that she also seemed to get into the the sadistic parts of 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 their relationship just shows me that you know she might have carried that on you know that was something she was always into potentially and whether or not she met paul she would have found a way to scratch that itch so to speak i think she would have found someone else we even saw in prison she found yeah, someone right. else somebody right? else who yeah. murdered somebody so i think she's just naturally attracted to that have you ever heard of uh the bonnie and clyde syndrome i i might pronounce this wrong it's like 
hybristophilia mm. or hybristophilia. It's like the people who send in love letters to serial yeah, killers and stuff. Yeah, but I don't understand that. Some people argue that this is like a heightened case in that where Carla is in love with him because he's doing all these terrible things, but then it's escalated to her being a part of it, mm. not only just a onlooker. Yeah. Daniel, you have any thoughts? I mean, I'm really just disappointed in the Canadian justice system at this point. I mean, with this case and then yeah, uh, absurd. the Greyhound bus one we covered, I mean, I'm all for I'm all for rehab rehabilitation of criminals, but when it comes to, you know, rape and murder, you don't deserve to be rehabilitated in my eyes at least. Nope. Nope. Makes no sense. I mean, here in the United States, if this case had been tried here, both of them would a hundred percent life in prison. No, no parole. I mean, honestly, Paul may, have, depending on what state they're in, they, Paul might've gotten the death penalty as well. Um, yeah. depending on where he, he would have committed these crimes, but, and the press ban too was a huge, I think that was a huge factor in swinging the case one way or the other. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that either. Cause yeah, at what point was the press ban like we're trying seem... to protect the legitimacy of this case or was it more like, oh, we might have totally fucked up with this plea deal. We yeah. don't want any of the media in the courtroom. We don't want them even talking about this case because we realize that we fucked up right get so much heat for it yeah yeah i think it's more protecting themselves yeah they, they want to protect themselves from getting flack from everybody because i mean who wouldn't be upset by this case like who wouldn't be upset by the punishment that they received i think you know everybody out there listening or watching is probably thinking the exact same thing as we are like both of these guys you know got off too easy yeah you know paul paul has the potential to get out which Let's all hope he doesn't. But the fact that Carla, at the end of the day, is out there living, basically started her life over and is living a whole other life, has kids now, and like, it's just crazy no, to me. No like, restrictions. No restrictions, yeah. yeah. They don't, she doesn't even have to check in with them or anything. She's just off to do whatever she wants. She can basically act like all that never happened. Yeah, and she complains. She's like trying to get the media ban from like, stop yeah. following me and stuff. It's like, man... This is like the least worst. Th this is best case scenario for you, Carla. Do you think like Literally. just the media following you around is the worst thing ever? I'm sorry God, people I'm are so being mean to you. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hope she's haunted by her sister, honestly. Same. I hope that she's tormented every single day and, you know, can't sleep and can't function to her full capacity because these things just are replaying in her head or, or worse, you know she's actually haunted by by her victims because it's just it's not right it's not right that she just gets to walk away from all this after everything that she took part in and help paul do and seemingly just get a total redo on life i mean she gets she ultimately wins in the end she ultimately gets to live out her ultimate goals and fantasies of having kids and having a family and it's like how the hell is she going to keep this from her kids how are her kids not going to be able to one day look up who she Ooh. really is and discover that their, their mom was that, a sadistic That, that just killer. shivers down my spine thinking right? about like, being, just imagine being her kid. Yeah. Yeah. Good How Lord. are they going to live with that? How are they going to be able to deal with that? I mean, it's just, I feel, and I feel bad for her kids for that very fact that for all we know, she's probably not, you know, she's probably telling them 
some completely different story. And I guarantee you, if we were able to talk to her right now, she'd still blame Paul for everything. No, oh, she'd yeah, be like, for Paul, sure. Paul was abusive. Paul made me do it. Paul, this is all Paul's fault. Mm-hmm. I was just this unwilling participant. You know, I guarantee you that's that's her narrative still is that she really wasn't into this. It wasn't really her thing, despite what the videotapes show. And now, of course, the videotapes are gone, destroyed. Yeah. And so there's, you know, we have the transcripts, the transcripts, I guess, it. but yeah. the video evidence is gone. And so it's much easier for her to, to, I guess, play that, play that side of like, I was just this battered housewife abused and, and not to get me wrong. She was abused. I, I recognize right. that. And obviously there is, you know, she was pushed into a lot of this stuff, but at some point she just accepted it and got on board with it. I mean, she had every opportunity to not only save Paul's victims, save their lives, but stop it. She yeah. could have stopped it at any point in time and she didn't. Yeah. And, and as a part of the abuse thing, it's like any good manipulator is, knows that any great lie has a lot of truth to it, you know? So she, she's like, yes, I was abused by my husband. Now let me use that to play into my greater lie of what I did and didn't do. But, and all the police footage just speaks volumes. The way she's talking to them, the the lack of emotion, just the she's so nonchalant when talking about everything. And you know, there's ton, there's tons of. I mean, we could we only put a few clips in here, but there's tons of video video clips on YouTube of the interrogation footage and and her walking through the house and the schoolgirl outfit, and it just seems like she's using her um her her looks to to her benefit you know she's this blonde barbie looking individual and she used that to her advantage to probably help her manipulate the cops even and and really like feel bad for me poor me you know and talk in this sad sad voice but and paul played the same game just in a different way right, right exactly but both of them are evil to no end just absolute animals that that should be locked away if not you know completely exterminated from the planet for what they did but that is where we're going to wrap up today's episode there's really not much else to say other than i can't you know i feel for the victims of of this this case and their families and just came and imagine what that must be like to deal with the this horrible reality of how your loved ones met their end i mean it's just it's something i i can't even imagine as a parent or you know a loved one of one of these victims so I just want to put that out there because ultimately that's that's what really matters at the end of the day. It's not these two individuals and you know the fact that they're Ken and Barbie killers. Like I think that's all just overblown and just the media doing what the media does, trying yeah. to you know get eyes on their story and stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, these are two sick, sick, evil individuals who deserve to rot in hell for for all I care. But let us know your thoughts in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. Um, if you're wa- you're listening elsewhere, watching elsewhere, you can always let us know your thoughts on social media, Lights Out Cast, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. But that is it for us today. We'll be back next week. We're going to be diving into some paranormal cases for a little while, which I'm I'm definitely looking forward to, and uh, taking a little bit bit of a break from the just the horrible reality of humans, I guess, for, for a little while. But we will see you next time. And until then, lights out everybody.